Welcome to The Author Show, where we feature new authors and books, from fiction to self-help and everything in between. You'll find it all at theauthorshow.com. That's theauthorshow.com. And now, let the show begin. Hello, and welcome back to the show. This is your host, Don McCauley. Today, we're welcoming the program author, Joseph Carabas, and he is the author of The Augmented Man. Joseph, tell us about your book. The book, The Augmented Man, is about an unwinnable war that takes place in South America on the drug fields. And it's the United States in an unwinnable situation. They need to create super soldiers to take care of it. What they do is they augment. They take people and they change them biologically and genetically to be essentially human tanks. And the story takes off from there. The individuals selected have specific reasons they're selected. Eventually, they're all destroyed except for one. He comes home. What do you do with this human tank, this monster, now that he's back in the States. That's the story. So who did you write your book for? Who's your target audience? The audience is actually, in my opinion, people who are male or female, doesn't really matter. I'm thinking the age range is going to be 20s through to like myself in their mid-60s, maybe a little bit older, possibly people who remember Vietnam because the book has some heavy symbolism to Vietnam. And from there we have anybody interested in science fiction, anybody interested in psychological thrillers. Those are the kinds of people who will tune into this book and go, yeah, this is something that I can get into. Now, could you say there's any type of central message or perhaps underlying theme that you would say runs throughout your book? Well, one of the heavy things that I hit on in the book is about PTSD. How do we bring people back who have been severely traumatized? So, The central theme to me, the message, would be no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, someone is going to love you and you're worth being loved. That's the thing about PTSD sufferers. They can't conceptualize themselves as being worth love anymore. So if you had to choose, what would you say is the single most important idea you're sharing in your book that's really going to add value to the reader's life? Well, one of the things the average reader is going to get out of this book is a deep understanding of human psychology. That's one thing everybody has commented about the book, that they have a much deeper understanding of what it's like to be in combat, what it's like to suffer, what it's like to be a prisoner of war. I don't go into a lot of detail in the book. That would be more than most people could deal with. But what I do do is cover the emotional pain and suffering, the psychological difficulties. So if you or if you, somebody you know has had this happen to them, or if you just want to know more about it, here it is in a science fiction setting with a lot of science behind it. Now, if you could compare your book with any book out there we might already be familiar with, which book would it be and why? Well, for any of your listeners who remember the, the first Rambo movie, First Blood, that's actually based on a book by David Morrill called First Blood. So the, my book, The Augmented Man, goes right back to that original First Blood movie. Any of your listeners who have ever seen the movie Hunted with Tommy Lee Jones, that's right there with them. Some of your listeners may be familiar with Tom Brown Jr. He's based out of New Jersey. He wrote a true story based on his experiences called My Frankenstein. One thing they all have in common is somebody is given some lethal skills. They can't deal with their lethal skills. The person who trained them has to go in and get them. That's the, the thing that's in all those stories and in The Augmented Man. 
So tell us about your characters. Have any of the characters become real to you? Oh, God. <laughs> One of the things that I experienced in writing this book was having discussions with the characters when I wanted them to do something or say something, and they would just, no, that's, no, I'm not doing that. That's not how I behave. And I'm having these discussions with nobody around. My wife's looking at me like, yeah, this could be a good, you better finish that book soon. So, yeah, yeah. So do you prefer to write, like, serialized novels, or do you prefer standalone books? I prefer standalone books. However, I also reserve the right to take characters in any one book and do an offshoot with them. One of the books that I'm working on right now, for example, Empty Sky, I've realized there are a lot of different characters who have interesting stories, and I could shoot off with them. But they would be standalone books. You wouldn't need to read the book before and the book before and the book before to know what's going on. What does your family think of these storylines? <laughs> uh, well, my, my wife's kind of used to it. So, uh, you know, she's like, okay, she sees the stories being created, so she's familiar with my process. My sister wants to know if we grew up in the same house because I, I very often will say I write autobiography and it gets sold as science fiction and fantasy, things that a lot of readers enjoy reading every day. So my sister reads my stuff and she's kind of, are you my brother, really? Did we grow up together? So what about your storylines? Do any of them really move you emotionally? Yes. As a matter of fact, I would have to say that all the storylines move me emotionally, and there's a reason for that. I strongly believe that a reader deserves to be emotionally shaken, if you will, to be emotionally moved, to become so involved with the characters in the story and what happens to them that for the time they're reading the book or the story or the novella or whatever, that becomes so real to them that when they put it down, it's like putting down a friend. It's like, oh, I'm not going to see this person again. So I want that emotional involvement, and I work for it. So what about the readers? What's the best comment you ever received on your work? Uh, that's a good question. I'm going to give you two, two comments, actually. One fellow read a flash fiction piece and vehemently and animatedly told me he hated the story, he hated the ending, he hated me for writing it. And the next thing he said was the fact that I could tick him off that much in 900 words told him I was one incredible writer. Yes, I loved hearing that. <laughs> and specific to the augmented man, a woman heard me uh, read the opening section, the surface section to the augmented man, and she said in front of the entire audience that she completely objected to the subject matter, the concept of using these traumatized people in combat, but the power of the writing drew her right into the novel. And I've got to tell you, when someone's story crafting, when their ability to tell a story overcomes a reader's objections and personal biases, that, that to me is phenomenal. That's what it's all about. Now, did your environment or upbringing play any major role in your writing? That's, uh, <laughs> that, that's another funny question to me. I have a gift, I guess, for hyperbolizing things. And nothing gets spared. I can remember incidents that happened when I was less than 10 years old where I would pick up a tool from my dad's toolbox, but I would hold it the wrong way, so to speak. And I would say, hey, Dad, look, a ray gun. And he would go, you've been watching too many Buck Rogers movies, son. So 
nothing gets spared from my childhood, from my teens, my adulthood, my work when I was in, in uh, an active part of the money-making economy. It was great stuff, but I don't do it now. So what can you tell us about your genre and why you prefer to write in that genre? A lot of my readers have actually gotten back to me and said that I am genre-defining. Now, my books tend to get out there as science fiction, fantasy, horror, children's stories, too, as a matter of fact, magic realism. One reader got in touch with me and said that my genre is Joseph, which I thought was very flattering. That's great for branding and marketing. It's nice to be your own brand. But I think in a lot of ways, the genre chose me. It seemed to be the one where I had the most flexibility to do and explore the kinds of themes and, and storylines that I really wanted to investigate. That gave me the, the ability to expand, if you will, and, and share the kinds of things that I was envisioning. So what's been your most rewarding experience since publishing your book? The most rewarding experience to me, I happened to go into a bookstore and they had my books on display. Wonderful. Loved it. And I saw a kid, probably, I'm going to guess, early teens, maybe a preteen, but somewhere in that age range. I saw him pick up the book, look at the cover, read the back cover, open it up, read a few pages, and then walk to the cash register. And I went, oh, yes, I have paid it forward for all the books I read as a kid. So how would you describe your writing style? I think of my writing style as very precision-oriented. I tend to write very exactingly. I'm one of those writers who really agonizes over the exact word and the exact phrasing. And I tend to write rhythmically, if you will. I, I write as if I'm composing music so that when people read my stuff, they're kind of drawn in without their realizing it, I hope without their realizing it. They are pulled into the story through the language, through the meter, if you will, of the sentences and the paragraphs. So I would say that I'm kind of a precision-oriented writer. My work's been compared to Orson Scott Card, which I think is terribly flattering. I'm sure he doesn't, but I do. So that's how it goes. So would you say you're more of a character artist or more a plot-driven writer? I focus on characters. I focus on characters extremely. I think plot is important, but plot is what happens to characters, and characters are what make the plot move forward. So I'm character-oriented. In your opinion, who should buy your book? Well, my first response to that is anybody with money, because it's tough to buy stuff with looks these days. Beyond that, I think my audience, the people who will really benefit from reading my book and, and get a thrill out of it, are going to be late teens, probably up to your mid-30s, even though I think the book can be read and enjoyed by a much broader range. But I think my sweet spot is late teens to early 30s, people who want adventure and self-knowledge and learning. Do you have a website? Yes, I do. It's josephcarabas.com, J-O-S-E-P-H-C-A-R-R-A-B-I-S.com. Well, this has been just great. Our guest today has been Joseph Carabas, and he is the author of The Augmented Man. Joseph, thanks very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The following is a short excerpt from The Augmented Man. 1st of April, 2053. 
Trailer closed his eyes and sat at the end of the bar where the cigarette-burned cheap black Formica countertop met the wall. He eased himself onto the last stool, tucking into the corner in the dim light, a spider hiding out of sight at the edge of its web. His fingers hovered over the cigarette burns closest to him as if divining their cause, sensing them like small, unhealed wounds, seeing the people involved, learning if each burn was an accident or intentional. The door opened and he smelled the cool April evening on his skin. It was followed by the alcoholic breath and sweat of two men and a woman they supported between them. Trailer brought his attention back into the bar, collating the activity immediately around him. The barkeeper, a heavy-smelling man gnawing a toothpick, his face somewhere between needing a shave and growing a beard, walked over to Trailer. Yeah? A beer. Whatever you got. The man grunted and walked to the other end of the bar. When he left, Trailer opened his eyes. A river of tattoos flowed up the man's left arm. An old-style claw prosthetic served as his right, its hinges and catches polished like silver and glinting in the mirrored bar light. He wore black jeans and a tie-dyed t-shirt over powerful shoulders and an ample gut. Trailer closed his eyes again as the man returned. It seemed to Trailer that the man swam upstream in a river of his own sweat. He placed a bottle of cores in front of Trailer. Six. Huh? Six. Six dollars. Can I run up a tab? I'll probably stay a while. The man shook his head. Uh-uh. Trailer handed him the money and nodded at the prosthetic. Amazonas? The man eyed him and shook his head cautiously. Laredo. I was there, too. The man eyed him a moment longer, then nodded as he walked away. Uh-huh. A five-man band walked onto a stage surrounded by a plexiglass cage reinforced with steel fencing, closed the cage door, set up, and tested their instruments. A woman screamed from a room hidden by a beaded curtain. Trailer stood up. The barman caught Trailer's shirt in his claw. You gonna drink your beer or what? Trailer stood a head and a half taller than the barman. He said nothing, closing his eyes when the woman screamed again. Eddie? Bill? The barman called out. We got ourselves a pretty boy here. Two scar-faced men got up from a table near the door and walked towards Trailer. He shook his head slowly, searching with his ears as a blind man might search out a strange sound. He moved his head from side to side and made a sound, quiet and deep in his chest, a great cat purring. His head snapped back and shook. He whispered, no, no, as if tasting something tart, bitter, something he wanted to spit out. Eddie and Bill smiled as they moved closer. Thin and wiry, Eddie had a chain around his waist, held on by a drop hook. Rolled back sleeves revealed lean, muscular arms, but with shoulders too high and too stiff for the arms they supported. He wore tight-fitting pants and taped his boots, the laces stopping halfway up. The right boot's tape stopped halfway down on one side. Trailer's eyes snapped open wide and he cataloged, his irises retreating as if aflame. Parkerized military machetes, 50 centimeter, sheath cross harness, Walther P38 9mm short 9 round capacity, right ankle lift grip, Rockwell C5759, EK combat knife, left ankle rip release. Bill's face and scalp looked as if he'd been lied. Short and squat, the lines on his clothes were clean, hiding no weapons, but revealing the scarred musculature common to bikers who played too hard too long. The woman screamed again. 
Trailer counted Eddie and Bill's footsteps by sound, measuring the two men by heartbeat. He felt Eddie's muscles twitch as Eddie thought about dropping his chain belt. Before Eddie's thought became action, Trailer's spine released and he grew. The barman's claw didn't open in time and he screamed as his prosthetic ripped out of its socket. Trailer's eyes closed and his face relaxed, becoming calm, pacific, the face of a child fallen asleep. He brought his head down hard onto Eddie's skull and smiled at the sharp-sounding crack. This is Don McCauley wrapping up another edition of The Author Show. Go out there, buy the book today, and please share this interview with your friends so that they too have the opportunity to discover our guests and their work. Remember, The Author Show can be accessed at any time at theauthorshow.com. Plus, selected interviews can also be found on major podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Play, and many more. And whether you're an author who would like to be featured or a reader in search of new books to read, The Author Show is a great place to start. Check us daily as we continue to introduce wonderful authors of very interesting books on The Author Show. Thanks for listening to The Author Show. Find out more about authors and their work at theauthorsshow.com. Theauthorsshow.com. Tune in next time to another great author on The Author Show.